At the beginning of a new sermon series entitled Ecclesia, we typically, as kind of the bread and butter at the Mission Church, just go through a book of the Bible at a time, and occasionally we'll just slow down, we'll pause, and we'll do a sermon series in a few weeks on a topic that we think would be especially helpful. But even when we talk about those topics, we find all of our rooting and grounding in the Word of God. And so that's what I'm going to hope to do as we begin this series and we continue on throughout the next several weeks. I want to begin by asking a question. You guys are all here gathered together. This is a local church gathering right now. I want to ask you the question, when did the mission church become a church? When did the mission church become a local church? I want to walk through with you real briefly, especially for those who might not know this already, a little bit of the timeline, the history of the mission church, just as we try to seek answers to that question that is presented. So Laura and I are both born and raised in the Chicago area, and I had been a pastor at a uh, good gospel preaching church out there for about seven years before God had laid heavily on our hearts the desire to moved to Utah and plant a church. We had not much other than a calling and a handful of convictions. It was back in March of 2013 that we made the public announcement to our church body there in the western suburbs of Chicago, of which we were members and well-connected to the body life. We told them our intent to move to Utah and plant a church. It was the first time it was Public. Before that time, we had talked about it, prayed about it, shared with a few people, gotten together. That was when we made it public. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're, by God's grace, hoping to do. In September of that year, we moved to Utah with that plan. February 2014 was the first time that the Mission Church, even under that name, gathered in our home up in the west side of South Jordan near Daybreak. We had a home we were renting out of there in our living room. And uh, we had gathering of believers there. I uh, grabbed a guitar and I played a few songs. I used my TV as the slide projector so people could see the words and sing along. Uh, then uh, shared a sermon from God's word on why we were in Utah, what we were hoping to go and do. And I, I don't know exactly, I don't remember exactly, but I know that there were like three or four families there. And uh, at least one of the families was just there for moral support. They were just, uh, they knew we were planting a church here and wanted us to know that, but that first month marked the first gathering of the Mission Church. I'm looking out here to see Mark Smith. I know your family was there in that very first month with us. It's the Mission Church. We had communion together. I don't think it was the first Sunday we were together, but it was sometime later. Fun note, we started our gathering on February 2nd at 4.30 p.m., which was the same start time for the Super Bowl that same day, and I didn't know it. <laughs> and yet... We survived. <laughs> Continuing on, July of 2014 was our first service in a church building. We rented a church building on Sunday nights in the valley so that we could have a place to gather outside of our home and maybe have more people come who wouldn't be able to come to our household and maybe have a capacity for more than if we were just in our household. July 2014 is when we first had a service on Sunday night in a church building. February of 2015 was our first Sunday morning service in the rented property at South Jordan Community Center. Some of you might remember that time. That's when we uh, were using that space. And consequently, that was Super Bowl Sunday also. And we didn't plan it that way. It just worked out. But that was in the morning. First time we had a Sunday, Lord's Day morning gathering service at the South Jordan Community Center. In 2015... June, Aaron, the Shafwalos had already been part of our church since the early times, and they were, they were there uh, even in our living room in our home. Aaron uh, joined the elders at the church, elder <laughs> at the church, and we officially had what the Bible, uh, the Bible doctrine is on the plurality of elders, more than just one, more than just a singular pastor, more than just a singular elder. At that point, we anoint, appointed Aaron to be the second elder. We officially reached the plurality of elders uh, in between that time, after the 2015, June 2015, we actually moved from the small room in the community center into the larger gym room. For those who were there, might remember that time. But it was October of 2015. I didn't put the, the little uh, sub-note on there. October of 2015 is when we had what we call our public launch. 
By that we mean that uh, Converge, the church planning organization we went with, kept asking, what was the date you started? What was the date you started? What was the, Come on, we need to know so we can celebrate this together. And I, don't, I, don't, I didn't have, a, have a, uh, a paradigm for how to answer other than, well, we, we need to have a time in which we say we go public. I'm going to talk about that idea much more in this sermon series. But it was October of 2015, we announced to the public, here we are, Mission Church, everybody, it's who we are. August or June of 2017, I didn't put it on here, but that's when Benjamin added to our elders. We had a third elder at that point. And then August of 2017 is when we officially had membership. Membership, where people could formally say that we are committed to the mission church. You might be looking at this and thinking, it sounds like a couple of things are out of order, and I'd agree with you. Because it's this category of thinking that I think is my greatest regret in us planting the mission church. There's a lot of things as we look back, we'd be like, man, I would have done that differently. I would have done that differently. If only we had seen that coming, we might have adjusted the way we thought or aimed things. But this category, becoming a church, formally, officially, an acknowledgement of that, is the place in which I feel like I have the most regret as a church planter and wish that we had done things differently for the sake of those who are with us. So the question again, I'll revisit it for your sake, when did the mission church become a church? Was it when we announced our intent? I know that some people I've run into have said that. When we announce your intent to plant a church, that means you're officially a church then. I've met, uh, I've met church planters who said, I'm a pastor. I go, of what church? They're like, well, it's not here yet, but someday it will be. Okay, that's a way to think about that, man. Others will say, whenever you gather together with people. Well, the people who were there, almost all of them were active members of other churches. They were coming just to kind of find out about what we were doing. They weren't, they weren't members of our church. They weren't committed to that. It was more an information kind of gathering meeting than anything else. So was it then? Was it the first time we had communion together? Was it the first time that we actually incorporated and had the legal entity, the legal name of a nonprofit organization in Utah, which was in March of 2014? Was that when that happened? Was it when we achieved a plurality of elders or membership? You guys see the question I'm asking. The way that you answer that question, when did we become a church, will reveal much about how you view church. I don't expect that we're going to get very far in answering this question today. I just want you to know that. I expect that today we're going to lay a little bit of groundwork. We're going to kind of put down the track on which we're going to run for maybe four to six weeks, could be more, I don't know. In this series, I hope to help you be able to answer that question, have a way to process through the answer to that question. Because I'll say it clearly, there was a point at which we weren't a church, and now I believe we are a church. Somewhere in there, something happened. That's what I'd like to do. As our text today, I want to go back to the very first place in the New Testament that the word church shows up. The very first place. If you were to read through the New Testament from Matthew through Revelation, the first place you see that word show up is in Matthew chapter 16. You guys can go to that verse if you want. I'm going to put it right up here. Now, because we're an expository church, we preach through verses. I actually preached through the book of Matthew several years ago, and I think it was September of 2016 that I preached through this passage. So if you want more on some of the keys of priesthood we talked about in here, we talk about Peter and the rock, some of those things. You can refer back to that sermon for that. But here I want to go right to the part where Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. First place we see it. I will build my Church. Now, the Greek word for church, we're using, we're using English church, the Greek word here is ekklesia, and that's, like, we kind of have a, a transliteration of it as the title of this sermon series, ekklesia. And it's a merging of two words in Greek. It kind of serves like a compound word. The prefix is ek, ek. Ek means out of. And the second half of that word comes from the root kaleo, kaleo. Kaleo is the Greek word which means to call. So this word, ekklesia, church, literally means called out ones. 
This word occurs 114 times in the New Testament, 108 of the times, and at least in the ESV version, which I'm preaching from, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's translated as church. The other six times it's translated as assembly or congregation, same idea. This already goes a long way to helping us biblically define what a church is, called out ones. It helps us get half the way, perhaps, to defining what a church actually is. It is not primarily an organization, an institution, or a building, but a people, a people called out. I think an important question might be, a people called out of what? People called out of what? We are those who are called out of this world, spiritually speaking. Jesus in John chapter 15 says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The church is those who are chosen out of the world. Now, Why is this important? Why would, I, why would I let this be the foundation pieces for a sermon series on the church? The t- title for today is, What is a Church? Well, why, why would this be a foundational introduction? It's the first time it shows up. That's helpful. Why would I think this might be an important thing to acknowledge before we go very far? Because the church of God does not conform to the world, but we bring all that is worldly under the lordship of Jesus. This means that when a new believer asks, oh my goodness, I I want Jesus. I don't want my sin. I don't want my past life. I repent of all of it. I want him. What should I I do, experienced believer? What should I do, bigger brother and sister in the faith? What should I do now? We don't say, just keep doing what you were doing. Just add Jesus to it. Whatever you were doing, just do it. Just add the adjective. Add Christian. It's not a Christian version of it. No, we say, you have a new life in Christ. Out with the old and with the new. Everything's going to change. This is something that I feel like is endemic. It's a problem that believers walk through others with oftentimes in counseling and try to help us figure out. We have a desire sometimes to just add merit badges to our vest. And sometimes conversion, becoming a believer, can kind of be thought of as just getting another merit badge. Jesus, put that right there next to, loves to hike. No, no, that's where we take off the vest of all what we used to be, and it goes, and now we have Jesus. We are, we are marked as Christians. Our life is new. We ought not sound like the world, look like the world. We ought not smell like the world. We must throw out the old playbook. It's time to get a new one. You see, too many people look at the world, and they try to discern the cause of the problems. Only a fool doesn't see the problems looking at the world. We look out there and we see these problems. We're trying to figure out how to solve these problems. And oftentimes people look at those, try to see what the world is lacking, what people need, and then try to organize around something they perceive will meet those needs. It's not a church. It's not a church. A church is not our best effort to meet the world's needs. That's not it. It's not a way to organize to solve the world's problems by worldly means. That's not what a church is. How do you know anything about God? Think about it like this. How do you know anything about God? How do you know the nature of God? How do you know who he is and how, how, he, how he refers to himself and, and the attributes of himself? How do you know any of that? By his word? He's revealed himself to us. Well, how do we know anything about salvation? How do we know anything about our human fallen condition? How do we know anything about eternal things? By God's revealing those things to us in nature and his word. In other words, God tells us. Why should we think it's any different for the church? Here's why I say this this way. I think it's way too easy to go like, man, okay, great. We got this God thing. We got this this man thing. We We got this salvation thing. We got the Jesus parts of it. We got the Bible. Okay, I think we got all this. This is good to go. We're gonna go do the church. Thanks, God. We got it from here. What if God had a very specific way in which he wanted the church to organize? 
What if God had a very specific way in which he wanted to receive worship from the church? What if God had a very specific way in which he wanted the church to operate and manage daily affairs in order to build the kingdom? There's really no what if about it. He does tell us. He does share with us. We ought not be surprised that the Bible is rich with this is how to be the church. What do you think the New Testament is? We read through the New Testament, much of it is written to what? To churches. Other parts are written to leaders of churches. All over the place in the New Testament, we see instruction given to how to be a church, how to be a body of Christ. I will build my church, called out ones. Who's the founder? Jesus is. I will build my church. To whom does the church belong, ultimately? Jesus. It's his church. I will build your church. No. You will build my church. No. I, Jesus, will build my Jesus' church. That's what he says. The church belongs to him. He lays the foundation. He produces the plans. He makes the cause. And his plan is better than any that you and I can convolute. He says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, I will build my church and it will not fail. This last week, uh, Barely had already said that the Manti pageant's going on down in central Utah. It's a big pageant, uh, kind of, it's a musical that plays out the uh, early life of Joseph Smith and then the uh, events of the Book of Mormon. And so there's a lot of uh, LDS people gathered together there and can hear that story and celebrate together. And so a bunch of believers go down and, and, and just stand on the street and offer to pray and hand out tracts and talk to people. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time slot where people are thinking spiritual thoughts, have a ton of free time on their hands, waiting for a, the, the sky to darken enough that the show can start. We've got hours where we just get to spend time and talk to people. And so I was down there and uh, I, I saw a group of young high school guys and uh, I just said, hey, can, can I talk with you guys? Had a chance to have a conversation, maybe an hour, maybe 90 minutes, talking with these handful of high schoolers. And one thing that they just took as a, as a as granted, as an assumption, is that Jesus failed his job to build his church. They didn't say it that way. But every time we got down to brass tacks with their beliefs and my beliefs, and why, why is, what's the foundation of the differences here? It all came back to, ultimately, that's, I think, the primary bottleneck. They think that Jesus failed his mission. Spent time with them. I explained, no, 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 no. Jesus said he would build his church. And even hell itself can't stop it. In Matthew chapter 13, just a few chapters before this, Jesus tells us that the kingdom growth will be like that of wheat and tares in a field. It's wheat and weeds in a field. He goes, believers will grow, and the, and the, and the enemy who sows the seeds of the weeds in the will grow. Wheat and weeds will grow together. They'll both be there, thriving at the end of the age until Jesus sends his angels to bring the winnowing fork Jesus says that it'll be, like, it'll be like leaven in a little bit of bread. You can't see it. Have you ever put leaven in dough and tried to watch it? You're not going to see anything. But it is working. It is working even when you can't see it's working. And it will produce its intended effect. Jesus says that the kingdom growth will be like that. The church growth will be like a, a mustard seed. It's the smallest of the seeds in the Palestinian gardens. You take this little tiny mustard seed and you put it in the ground. What's going to happen with that seed? It's going to grow to be the largest of all the plants, the trees in those gardens. The birds are going to come from all over to land in its, its branches. Does that mean that it's going to grow for a little while and then die out for thousands of years until finally it's rehabilitated? No! It starts small, grows big, no matter what anyone says, in the face of adversity, without interruption. This is what Jesus says. In the Great Commission that concludes Matthew chapter 28, this that concludes the entire book of Matthew, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him, therefore go, and he gives the Great Commission. Amen. And at the end of that Great Commission, he says, and surely I will be with you to the end of the age. That's not a hopeful plea. Please don't mess up. 
He promised, I will build my church. No one can stop it. And to say otherwise is blasphemy. There's nobody more suitable than Jesus to jumpstart the next generation of the growth of the church. It will certainly advance without fail. Psalm 127, 1. One of my favorite Old Testament verses. We have this written right outside our door, walking into our house. We have this written on a little white chalkboard kind of thing, you know, a white marker on a black chalkboard. See it every time I walk in the door. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. If you try to build your own version, you don't want to get on board of the church like that. You want to be on the church that cannot be stopped even by the gates of hell. Does the weight of sinfulness of this world burden you? Do you look around? Do you look at the state of politics in our world today? Do you look at the state of America in our day? Do you struggle like I do? I'm a patriot. I'm like, my family, red, white, and blue. As far back as I can trace, there are veterans in every generation of Sanfords that I know of, everyone that we can trace to. And Marines, which are super veterans, for the record. And I struggle. I have this impulse on Memorial Day and on 4th of July. I want to put up a flag. I want to sing, I'm proud to be an American. And I look around at what the world thinks about America and I go, uh, 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 I'm, not, I'm not proud to be that. Do you know what I mean? Do you, I don't know if anyone else struggles with that. I, I do. I, 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 want, I want to be so grateful for this country and I am. And I want to, I want to acknowledge that. But I, I have a hard time because, man, this world is crazy. It's crazy. We're supposed to advance the kingdom in this How are we supposed to build a kingdom for Christ in the face of this kind of adversity? Do you know why Jesus used these words, gates of hell, gates of Hades, in some of your translations? Do you want to use those words? Because he preached this sermonette in Caesarea Philippi. It was a place inland in the northern portions of uh, Israel. It was right south of Mount Hermon and the mountainous areas. And there's, there's there's a whole village there and it's actually been uncovered by archaeologists. You can go walk through it right now. And Caesarea Philippi. It was the center of pagan worship in the northern parts of Israel. And there was a cave there underneath some cliffs where a natural spring fed water that flowed out as a river. And it was the place where this centralized pagan worship believed that the demons would flow between the underworld and the upper world, rest of, rest of the earth, from every winter, they go hibernate in the winter, they come back out. And so it was a central center of pagan worship. And even in Jesus' day, people were gathering around that area to worship the false god Pan and to take babies and to throw them into the water as sacrifices. And if the babies floated in the water, it would be that they were not received as sacrifices by the demons, they would die for no reason. But if they went under the water, it would be a sign that the demons accepted their sacrifice. This was going on when Jesus was preaching these sermons. They were sexual activities with goats in order to please the God of Pan. And they called the area the gate of hell. And here's Jesus preaching to these guys. Right there. Maybe he pointed. I'll tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If Jesus were not the builder, we would have no chance against hell. But with Jesus, hell doesn't stand a chance against his church. Some might say, but Rich, I've known lots of churches that have been planted or started or people have attempted to start and They've fallen apart. They're gone. When I moved to Utah, the church planting success rate was like 15% or less, depending on who you'd ask. 85% of the people who moved to Utah to plant churches moved back to wherever they came from. So how can you say 
that he will build his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Wherever we look, we see churches apostatizing. Everywhere we look, we see churches starting up and then falling to bits. This has happened multiple times since I've moved to Utah. How can you say that? Here's how. The Bible talks about the church in two ways. There's a bunch of different ways we can distinguish. Here's one major category of distinguishing features. The Bible talks about the church as the universal church and as the local church. In other words, the Bible refers to the church as the church, capital C, big C church, and the little c church, local church. Church universal, church local. And the Christians in the New Testament saw themselves as members of both the universal church and the local church. The whole New Testament talks like this. This passage right here is a good example of what we see reference to the universal church. I will build my church. And we're like, oh, I want to go to that one. Where's, where's that one? Well, maybe Caesarea Philippi, because that's where you're standing. No, we know. That he's talking about this in a universal sense. Ephesians 1.22 is another place we see this. There's dozens. I'm just going to give you a few examples so you see. And he, God the Father, put all things under his, his son Jesus, his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Again, we don't go, which one? I want to go to that one. This is the universal church. Colossians 1.18. We read this earlier today in worship time. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. I'll read that one. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The body of Christ, the church, universal what's oftentimes being referred to in the New Testament. We see these kinds of promises going out. All true believers in Jesus are members of his universal church. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God indwells you as a believer. You are a member of the universal church. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And Paul makes this point very clear in Ephesians 2 because he knows that there's a little bit of a sentiment of division, in some places a large amount of sentiment of division, between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians and how they ought to live together. He's like, stop it. You're fellow citizens. You are together mutually members of the household of God. This is the universal church. This is what unites us together. Lots of things that we can say doctrinally, theologically unite us together. But our membership into the household of God is significant. You have more in common with the Christian from North Korea than you do with your non-Christian next-door neighbor. That means language. That means food. That means even if our countries were to ever go to war and see one another as national bitter enemies, you have more in common with those brothers and sisters than you do with next-door neighbors who agree with you in morality and ethics, perhaps, all across the board, but aren't believers. You're more united because you're both members of the same church. We go down to Temple Square, do evangelism down there, and occasionally we hear from people something that I love to respond to. They look around skeptically to go, so what church are you from? The, uh, and the sentiment being expressed in that moment is, so you're just trying to make everybody part of your little C church. That's the, that's what you, this is self-serving for you. And I love, we get to turn around and be like, well, we're from a whole bunch of different local churches. Different denominations even. Different theological views and some different categories. And we know what they are, believe me, because <laughs> when you're not here, we talk about them. <laughs> but we are united. We're part of the church. So we see a universal church in the Bible. And it's, honestly, it's not hard when you're reading a passage to determine, are they talking about universal or local churches? It's, it's usually pretty clear, pretty simple. Most occasions. But the, ver the Bible also talks about local churches. Let me show you some local churches being referred to in the Bible. Acts 15, 41. And he, Paul, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There's multiples of them. 
There's lots of them. Well, they're all, they're all part of the church, but there's a bunch of little ones. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Since Paul's going around on his journeys and he's meeting individual church gatherings of believers and he writes to Romans and says, all of them greet you. He speaks representatively for all those churches greeting another church over there across the Mediterranean. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This happens all the time. You know, some people try to like partition out. Well, when there's a specific command given to a local church in the New Testament, it doesn't apply to everybody. Well, Paul seems to say the opposite multiple times. That we all unite together under a common doctrine. Even though we're individual and unique from one another, there are things we all share in common even in beliefs. That's going to be in future weeks too. Colossians 4.15 says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Have you ever been to that church? No. Feel pretty confident that house isn't still here. That's the way people gathered in the first century together. There's individual local churches. There's more of these in the New Testament. But this is just examples. Individual local churches that are representative gatherings of the universal church. All that was my intro. Here's what is a church. What is a church? I want to take a stab at the definition of a church. And the reason I say take a stab is because there isn't a verse that goes, this is the church. Okay? So we read the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. We put the pieces together. We say, what would be the best way to explain quickly, simply, succinctly what a church is? Here's my stab, personally. It was Rich's definition, what I think It'd be a helpful way to talk about the church. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gathers in Christ's name around worship, prayer, the ordinances, and the preaching of God's word and organize life together as the family of God. Every word of that is meaningful. We're not going to break that all apart this morning. The only one I want to make sure that you're not lost on is the word ordinances. That refers to baptism and communion, that we gather together around those things in the New Testament church. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gathers in Christ's name around worship, prayer, the ordinances, and the preaching of God's word, and organize life together as the family of God. Subsequent weeks from now, we're going to be unpacking the parts and pieces of this. I, I realize this is one of those kind of sermon series. It's really hard to slowly walk your way in. It's almost like teaching somebody how to drive a car if they've never seen one. It's hard to like start by saying, so um, these are wheels. Um, that's a windshield. You kind of have to go, let's get in and drive, and you'll start to experience what's going on. Then we can back ourselves back out and talk about the parts and pieces of it. It's kind of like that. This was going to be a 12-hour sermon, but Laura told me that's not a good idea, so I... Local church. There are several things that distinguish the local church, these things here, from the universal church, but most fundamentally, the local church gathers. So you could say a group of Christians. What's well, a group of Christians? You could say, look, well, wait a minute, the group constitutes billions. Well, that's the universal church. Okay. Who regularly gathers in Christ's name. Well... You and I have never gathered at the universal church before. Because we can't. Not exhaustively, certainly not, right? It'd be great to fit everybody in a room, but it's not going to happen. Even if somehow you were to be able to pull together some giant gathering of every genuine believer on the planet, you'd miss all those who passed away. Because they're part of the church too. We'll be united with them again someday. We will not gather universally until heaven. But we can and should gather locally every week. The Septuagint is the Old Testament written in Greek. So it was written in Hebrew originally, a little bit of Aramaic, mostly Hebrew. Uh, Greek-speaking people said, we need a Greek version of this. So they made a, a, a Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. It was actually in use in Jesus' day. Much of the New Testament quotes and cites the Septuagint when it's referring to the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, the term assembly of the Lord is translated in Greek as ekklesia. That's the word that's being used there. So the so if you didn't follow that, the idea is where we see church in the New Testament, assembly of the Lord is supposed to be a close synonym. Maybe not exact, but pretty darn close. That idea, the gathering people of God. Assembly of the Lord. By definition, ecclesia, those called out, are not just called out to go scatter in a field. They're called out to gather together, to assemble together. That's all thought of together in that word. It's the assembly, the gathering of God. The people of God necessarily assemble. In other words, there is no such thing as a local church that does not regularly gather. That's not a, that's not a church. Once a quarter we get together. That's not a church. That's why it's not possible for the mission church to have been a church before we started gathering. We could have that name. But until we started gathering, it wasn't actually a church. It wasn't a local, regularly, regular gathering of a group of Christians. And this isn't just implied. This is explicitly commanded. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What ought our habit be? Our habit ought to be getting together. That's our habit. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit. Don't, don't make the habit of not meeting together. Make the habit of meeting together. Don't neglect that. It's a command of Scripture. We are to get together. Man, I was just thinking this last week. This is, this is the closest to heaven that you're going to get, this side of death. I want you to think about that. Meeting with believers. What are you going to do for eternity? You're going to be in the presence of God and billions of believers worshiping and praising him. That's what you're going to be doing. What's the closest equivalent you see to that in this life? When you gather with believers in his name to worship and praise him. Does this not put a spin on the way that you might think about vacationing? I promise you, it is better to be here than camping. I promise you, it is better to be amongst brothers and sisters than any sporting event or extracurricular. Rich, is it ever okay? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's okay. It doesn't say never miss one. It says don't make it a habit of neglecting to meet together. But I want you to think about it. This morning, I was just, I've been in tears this whole week. On a Sunday night, Laura and I had a FaceTime uh, video call with uh, a dear friend of ours back from Illinois. She is a young woman who was mentored by Laura in the youth group, and I was a youth pastor, got to know their family really well. We've been closely united, worked in the same church on staff together with, with her mother and gotten to know her father super close and tight in relationship. They're some of our dearest, dearest, dearest friends. And we were so excited to find out that uh, this young woman, Sarah, was planning to, uh, she just got married last summer, and she's planning to move uh, to a very underreached part of the world. They don't even have a Bible written in the language there yet. And she just feels this strong calling. And her husband feels this strong calling to just not be American anymore, but go there. They want to, they're going to the place where many missionary organizations are pulling their Christians out because of the intensity and struggles there. And they're, they're like, we want to go, we want to go, we want to live our lives, we want to have kids there, we want, to, we want to be among the people there, we want to live amongst literal refugees, you want to pour into people who are known to hate God and hate Christians, and, but we want to go there. And they spent a the summer last year doing, doing that, and they just fell in love with it and said, this is what God wants for us. And so they're raising support, and they were talking to us about how to get on board with those things. We were so excited. We committed to pray for them and with them and be part of that whole process. And uh, that was Sunday night. And then I think it was... Wednesday, found out that she was rushed to the hospital with a newly found rare form of cancer that has an abysmally low survival rate. I 
by all worldly measures, shouldn't make it to Christmas. What do we do? What do you do? I'll tell you. All the believers in their life in the universal church who know them because they shared life with them in a local church do whatever it takes to love and to pray and to provide for the needs of that family. So it's cool because this morning I'm worshiping, I'm just praising, I'm thinking, oh, do you know what all those Christians are doing right now? Do you know what they're doing right now? When I say all the Christians, I mean a tight uh, network, uh, a knit group of believers who once shared local body life together when we all lived in the same state. Many of us are all over the country and maybe even the world. And um, We worship together this morning. Because as we were here in the mission church and praising God, they were all over praising God today. Folks, we need the local gathering and we need to acknowledge the universal gathering. Christians are weird. We are weird. Nobody can do this. Nobody can genuinely live like this. No one has the spirit that connects us no matter where we are. And it is glorious. And you want to know how you find those relationships and friendships in life? In a local church. That's how you get to know people. That's how you begin that life party together that will never fade, never end. The way you think about the church as both local and universal really matters. Two things and we'll end here, okay? Don't neglect the universal church. I need you to think about the church as universal and local. Both of those things. We need to carry them together in our, in our mindset about the church. Some people think that as long as they have friends or life at a local congregation, they've got, they've got um, relationships there and a calendar full of events to do, then they're spiritually, they're just fine, they're good. Yeah, I'm a member of a church, I'm a part of a church, I, I hang out at a church, I do things with a church. They treat the church like a club. <coughs> I met so many people in my life. I sat down as a pastor. A, a bigger church, it was way easier for this to happen, I think. It's at a church of thousands back in Illinois. I remember sitting down with people often and saying, let me hear your testimony. How'd you come to faith in Christ? And now over and over and over and over and over again, would hear people say, well, I just I had Sundays open and I heard about this church and I came and I liked the music and the preaching was encouraging and I've been coming ever since. Gently and patiently, I would say, that's, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord for local congregations. But what does that have to do with your faith? And many times when I ask, well, what does it have to do with your faith? They go, I just told you. I'm a regular attender at a church. If you're not part of the universal church, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. This is why Christians, true Christians, have to realize this, to think like this, have to acknowledge this. We pray together for people we've never even met. We do that not as like, well, there's this name. It's kind of like seeing a news report about something and well wishes sent to them. No, there's a kind of unity and a bond. We're going to spend eternity with those people. Worshiping our God. Some Christians experience very little spiritual fruit because they stay at local churches that are not building up their souls. And the reason they stay is because they like some of the amenities that are there. They like, maybe, just, oh, I just, we have two friends we really love there. Oh, it's terrible for our soul. The church is awful. But those friends are so good. What are you doing? You're, you have a loyalty to the universal church. What are you thinking? To seat yourself in a place that's not going to strengthen you and make you a better part of the universal church. That should trump all for you. If you neglect the universal you may be willing to settle at the local level for something that is not best for your soul. We see it all the time. This doesn't mean that we aren't going to find bodies of gathering people that are actual believers. I think genuine Christians fall into this error all the time. And their life is robbed from spiritual fruit. 
because they become anemic. Their spiritual muscles atrophy because they're not being built up. Don't neglect the universal church. You are far, you must be far more loyal to that than the mission church, any local gathering. What would happen? What would happen to you personally if you're a regular here? What would happen to you if all of a sudden I were to stand up here and start preaching folly and heresy and untrue things? God forbid. Would you say your faith is gone, defunct, all hope is lost? No. Because Christ will build his church and the gates of hell and foolish pastors and even wolves will not prevail against it. Don't neglect the universal church. And second, don't neglect the local church. Some overemphasize their membership in the universal church, so much so that they forsake their need for local body life. You might have run into people like this. They reject all forms of organized religion. Well, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I hate the church. I never go to church. Well, I'm just a Christian. I just kind of bounce around. I go wherever I feel. I'm not, I will not commit to a local place. Lauren and I went to the aquarium with my parents uh, earlier in the year. I think it was like January. And uh, had all of our kids with us. And usually we're pretty mindful of where our kids are. But when we had my parents there too, we doubled the number of adults. And so we're like, ah, there's really only four kids that can walk around. Laura's got one little baby strapped to her. Well, no, that was before the baby was born. There's just like literally four little kids, four adults. We got this. And we all assumed the other one was watching until we looked around and did the head count. Where one... We could, you're missing one. It was Bethany who wandered off in the penguin exhibit or something like that. And we all started, you know, you know how that goes? You ever lost a kid and you're like, well, uh, I'm sure she's here somewhere. And, you start, and, and, and it starts getting more and more panic because the, the farther you spread out and the farther you go out and back in, out and back in to where you first realize you lost the kid, you can't find him. And you're like, oh, no, there's tons of people here. It's going crazy. We found her. It's all okay. She's sitting over here. No worries. Whew. What happened? All of us just assumed that someone was watching out for each kid. Guys, that's what happens at a local level with believers too. We always assume that everyone's watching out for individuals. This is one of the things that membership's about. We're going to do like a whole sermon on membership. It's one of the things it's about. A church saying, we got that family. We got it. We're, we're, we're the ones. We'll watch out. We're the ones responsible as a body, corporate body. Don't neglect the local church. Don't do it. You know, the Bible makes this super heavy for us. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Jesus says, The way that the world will know that you're my disciples is how you love one another. When people say, I love, I love Jesus, I refuse to connect with his church. That is dangerous language. If you have no love for the local church, you aren't a Christian. You are not. There's no reason for anyone to affirm your Christianity if you don't have love for a local church. You need to be members of a local church. You need to commit to be part of a local body and say, as long as I live here, I'm here. I'm part of this family. The true and genuine local church is the one who builds you up and strengthens your membership in the universal church. You have to have both. And that's my point in this whole sermon today. As a believer, you need to, you must acknowledge that you are a member of the universal church and you must be a part of a good local church. You can't read the New Testament and get around this. It's everywhere. I think I'm going to land there for this morning. But here's what's coming up. The plan was, and I anticipate it still will be, next week we're going to talk about what unites us together as a church, what divides people in a church, what should unite, what should divide. We're going to talk about things like membership. I'm even going to talk about things like denominations. I know there's so many people don't understand. What, what does that mean? Like, what's a Baptist or a Presbyterian? Why does that matter? We're not going to get into all the nitty-gritty. This, this is a sermon time, not just to give a historical uh, points to stuff. But I do, I do want to help you have some understanding of that. We're going to talk about elders and deacons and how church life ought to function and what the church is designed to do. We're going to try to cover those things and finish in time to dive into the book of Hebrews next. 
So here's my, here's my ask for you as we conclude today. Follow through with me, please. Please come regularly. Stick it out here. If for some reason you can't come, you're not able to make it for a specific week, you got a trip or something planned, listen, we, we put these online on video. We put them on, on audio so you can, you can access them from anywhere, wherever you go. So follow along as I try to build a case for you why this is in the Bible and why this ought to be experienced and practiced in the way that we're trying to organize here at the Mission Church. And please be prayerful as you do that, that God would enlighten your hearts, your minds, your eyes to see what he wants you to see in the New Testament regarding how the church should operate. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I am... I have a hard time praying to close. I want to talk about so much more. I want to be helpful. I, I, I desperately ache, ache to serve this body. And in part because I feel like I perhaps have neglected to help this body understand and know these things. Lord, forgive me for that. Lord, help any regret that I have in that to fuel my desire to serve, uh, to sacrifice for this church to commit to, to, to digging into this so that we can understand together, we can unite together around what it means to be a local body of believers. Father, I pray that as we walk through these things that you would help us to be those called out, that there is, there is wrong thinking in this room about a church. And some of that wrong thinking is right here behind the pulpit. Lord, we need you to call us out of our wrong thinking about what it means to be a gathered body of believers. Help us. Oh, Lord, we believe that it would be honoring to you for us to better understand this and better align to what it looks like to be the people of God gathered together. Father, forgive us we haven't done this well. Teach us, help us, help us to close the gap between wherever we are to where you would want for us to be as a body. And Lord, let it grow. Let more and more people come to this local body that we would, we would help strengthen people's membership in the universal body of Christ. And we love you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.